This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. So public discourse about religious freedom has been white too long. But I don't have to white explain that white people may be open to hear, maybe not as open to hear uh, that as much as actually, you know, actually being part of change, right? So right. what does that look like? Cultivating the broadening and deepening of more diverse voices around religious freedom. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including the Honorable Charles Qualls, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. This is the CBF podcast conversation nestled in the heart of the gathering place at General Assembly in Atlanta. Uh, this podcast conversation is brought to you by Palm Beach Atlantic University. It sounds pretty tropical. Uh, yeah. Are you ready to embark on a transformative journey that unifies faith, community, engagement, and social change? The Community Transformation Center at Palm Beach Atlantic University offers graduate ministry programs designed to empower faith leaders to make lasting impact far beyond the traditional boundaries of congregations. We call it creative chaplaincy. Meet people where they are. Take your calling into the world where it's needed most. Learn more at pbactc.org. Well, our guest is Dr. Sabrina Dent. She is the director of the BJC Center of Faith and Justice and Reconciliation. Sabrina, thank you for joining the conversation. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Andy. I think I added a few more ands to your title than we're actually there. So <laughs> Center for Faith justice and reconciliation yes, so. BJC. Uh, so uh so when preparing for uh, your introduction I, I was humbled by the fact that um, i wouldn't be able to cover everything that you've done in your career whether from serving at the religious freedom center to the editor contributor author of uh african-american religious freedom or being named one of the 21 faith leaders to watch from the center of american progress so the first question is what's the secret to crushing it <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool question. I like that. Um, you know what? Honestly, 
I'm just so grateful to have had the experiences that I've had, to be in spaces where people have heard my voice and what I also say is they heard my heart. Um, and to have those opportunities to engage in conversations and with organizations and individuals to really do the work that speaks to my soul. Or as Dr. Katie Cannon says, the late Dr. Katie Cannon says, to do the work my soul must have. And I think that comes with building relationships with people and communities and really remembering our histories, our stories, our experiences, and the communities from which we have come from. That to me is the success, is that, that you remain in community and remain in relationship with those individuals and groups and remember the issues that impact those communities and the people that you say you love and care for. To me, that's, that's the recipe for success right there. I mean, realizing that I stand on the shoulders of many and I don't do it alone. All right, so you're new to BJC, joining the staff this year after serving as the, the president of the Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation, which is now part of BJC. So tell us what the vision is behind the center. Right. So the center was what we call the brainchild of Dr. Corey D.B. Walker, Dr. Linda Bridges, and um, Dr. Uh, Bill Leonard. And the idea was to really have a place um, where a theological think tank and education space where people that are part of communities but also theological education could really have deeper conversations about what does it mean to build and to build and expand the beloved community. And so, you know, that's a term that many people recognize as far as Dr. King. And looking at the beloved community that for us, that includes includes everyone. And in building the beloved community, you have to talk about issues of justice because people come from so many different religious identities and none, but they also come from different racial, cultural, and ethnic identities. And so the issues that we experience in our lives intersect with the very issues that we talk about when we talk about justice and freedom and also religious freedom in this country. So the mission is what we say is our model is that faith is our foundation, justice is our calling, but reconciliation is our goal. And so in that, it's about doing the work of having meaningful dialogue and to really give people the tools um, and equip them with what they need to have these conversations, but also to take action Action in their communities. And so to have that um, at the BJC through the center, we have the opportunity to really expand that work because BJC has been doing the work of faith, protecting faith, freedom for all for over seven, 87 years, right? So to have a space where we're invited into to expand the conversation and to reach many more communities and really center those communities and their issues in the conversations that we're having about faith and freedom in this country. That's what the center was designed for, a place where we can think together, where we can work together, but we can also take action together. So uh, I was in a meeting with Dr. Dean Corey a uh, couple, couple uh, actually last week uh, for the recording purposes, yes. you know, weeks ago, <laughs> you know, the man, I was sitting there and I was looking over and he was taking notes, has the most incredible handwriting I have ever seen before in my <laughs> life. It looks like, you know, the calligraphy uh, font from, right. and I had to like stop and I was like, Holy smokes, because when you when I write something, you can't read it at all. <laughs> and it was just the most incredible thing. I think he was kind of taken back by my compliment, but I was like, it's incredible handwriting, man. You should be proud of that. that. Is so, <laughs> so next time you're with him, just take a look at his stuff. It, it, it so almost funny. looks like Tolkien's elvish uh, writing from Lord of the Rings. It's incredible. So, All right, so, uh, so public discourse about religious freedom has been white too long. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I know this is a, kind of a statement that uh, you all have around the center. Uh, but I don't have to white explain that white people may be open to hear, maybe not as open to hear uh, that as much as actually, you know, actually being part of change, right? So right. what does that look like? Cultivating 
the broadening and deepening of more diverse voices around religious freedom. Right. I mean, it is a motto that, um, or a statement that BJC has really embraced over the years in terms of looking at the fact that religious freedom has been white too long. And what that means is the narrative that has been told about religious freedom in this country. It has been exclusive of people of color, um, religious minorities, um, and so, and even the LGBTQ community and their experiences. I, I think it's important for us to really think more broadly about the experiences of people in this country. For example, and we talked about this in our book, African Americans and Religious Freedom, is that, you know, African Americans, we're not a monolith, right? We came, we didn't come. We were brought to the United States, right? Um, we don't, all of us do not have the experience of our ancestors making a decision to come across the seas and to seek a better life. Some of us were brought here unwillingly in chains. And so, but when we were brought here, we brought cultural identities. We brought religious identities that may not have been Christian, right? 30% of enslaved Africans were Muslim. And so, when you think about the narratives, and then you have people that practice African spirituality, right? So they came with their own religions and beliefs. But when you're brought into a situation um, that dehumanizes you and also tells you that you can, you're not human and you can't practice what you believe, right? That, that changes the narrative of talking about religious freedom in this country. So when the founding framers wrote the brilliant document, they did not consider the experiences of the enslaved people that they brought to this country. And so when you think about that narrative, you have to unpack what does that mean for these communities today? What did that mean historically? There is a reason why the black church was established because we weren't accepted into the main church, right? We weren't seen as, we weren't seen as human. But there are stories and narratives, one that I embraced even when I was a BJC fellow, was the story about Gowan Pamphlet, um, a black Baptist minister, eventually a minister, right? Because he wasn't initially accepted in that. But there's this story about how the right hand of fellowship that he received through the Baptist tradition wasn't just about being a Baptist. It was about humanizing his experience as a man. And so to talk about religious freedom in different ways other than the narrative that has been given is really about humanizing the experiences of so many communities whose voices have not been elevated or their stories have been overlooked and denied. It's also a reason why there are the, uh, the things historically where you talk about the hush harbors, right? Because black communities had to come together in quiet places that were in secret to worship. So if you have freedom, if you have freedom, you're able to do it publicly, right? But if you don't, then you have to do it in those quiet and secret places. So that's one of the reasons why the narratives have to be told. But we also have to look at how in the current context this has implication for people's lives. Um, we know that there were decisions made last year through the courts, right, through the Supreme Court and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I know that's a complex conversation for some people depending on their theological beliefs and ideologies, right? But to suggest that there is one particular way in which uh, someone should make decisions about their health, their health care in this country without thinking about, well, maybe this person thinks theologically or their beliefs point to something else. Um, um, I think we need to have those conversations. And too many times people don't look at this issue through the lens of what's happening right now. They only like to look at historically, the founding framers wrote this document, everyone had a religious freedom, had the right to practice. No, 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 everyone did not. And so we have to talk about that. So BJC has been self-deprecating recently, stating that it confesses and acknowledges that our table has not always been an inclusive place where everyone has been welcome or made to feel at home. Um, in your time as a board member and now as a staff member, how are you seeing them live into this confession? And probably the second part of that conversation is how might 
BJC model the way for others in, in trying to be more authentically inclusive? Mm, absolutely. So I would say one of the things that I noticed even before becoming a board member uh, was as a fellow, um, as a BJC fellow, I know I came into the program with some questions. I'm like, where is the narrative and the experience of African Americans, right? So to provide pushback and there was this openness to hearing, to hearing what I was saying was one, one of the ways in which that happened. Then there was in 2015, when I, right after the Charleston shooting happened, there was the charge that was given Dr. Mar, um, by Dr. Marvin McMickle for BJC to really expand its understanding of religious freedom in broader ways, but also, as he said, to break the silence, right? To break the silence around the, uh, about not touching those other narratives. So I've seen it in many different ways where that happened, but as a board member, one of the things that I can appreciate is um, Amanda Tyler's leadership and her listening um, to what we had to offer and what we had to share. And what I mean by we is in 2018, um, I was leading the Religious Freedom African American Perspectives Project when I was with the Religious Freedom Center. And we were offering a course to um, students that were from the six historically black theological institutions. And we had the opportunity to read the book, um, uh, Religious Freedom, The Contested History of an American Ideal by Tisa Winger. In her book, the chapter that we assigned for our session, I was co-teaching with Reverend Charles Watson Jr., who was formerly with the BJC, and we were teaching a session. And in the chapter, Tisa called out the BJC for not taking action on issues that pertain to racial justice. Well, Amanda Tyler, in her leadership, of course, that information was brought back to her. And she took action by saying, we need to address this. We need to do more investigation. We need to do the research. And that's exactly what happened. As a result of that, the project on race and religious freedom was born. And it was about being intentional and uh, in understanding what happened in the past, what was the misstep that BJC took at that time, or what are the things that needed to happen to bring us to a point of beginning the process of reconciliation. And that has continued to happen as we continue to build and strengthen our relationships with black Baptist denominations, because that's where that, um, that's where that tension and friction and issue came from. So that's one of the ways, but also through the Voices series with the inclusion and now the merger of, of the BJC Center for Faith, Justice and Reconciliation, we're doing programs that point to raising the visibility of communities that so often do not get heard, do not get seen. Um, in October, we're doing a program uh, that's a conversation is uh, through our Religious Freedom Mobile Institute that we're having a conversation with black non-theists and black church leaders to really examine and reimagine what is the religious landscape of black America. How do we have conversations about freedom, about religious freedom in this country that holds the entire community in care? And there have been many other ways in which BJC has been intentional about doing this work. And so um, as someone that started as a fellow, right, and then uh, was, a, was a board member and a donor and now as an employee, I'm excited about the work that we're doing because BJC is starting to really live into what Dr. King talked about as being a transformed nonconformist. That's really doing the work and taking the risk and speaking out about the issues courageously, right? That means you have to walk the walk <laughs> that you're talking, right? So I, I, that's, those are the things that I'm seeing in this work. And the fact that I have the support of the organization and um, my executive director, Amanda Tyler, in doing this work is significant. Because here's the thing, this work is not for the faint of heart. 
It's for people that are willing to take the risk, and it's going to come with a lot of risk. And that risk might look a little different, right? You know, we see splits of churches and congregations and denominations all the time. We don't know what's going to come as a result of it. But I truly believe that she's she's following the calling that God has given to her at this moment to do the work of justice. And so, yes, so there are many different ways in which BJC is expanding that. And here's the thing. We're not done because there's more work that needs to happen. This is just like the continuation of what has started over 87-year history, right? And change happens sometimes incrementally, and sometimes change can happen overnight. We see it happen in the public square. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. So Baptists have always held the value of religious freedom. Not all Baptists hold the perspective that religious freedom extends to other faith groups, certainly not non-Christians, and certainly not people who don't look and practice church like us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a tremendous racial component behind not uh, incorporating religious freedom of black and brown people. You, you've talked a little bit about the history of that within yeah. um, some Baptist views uh, on these matters. So. These same folks certainly don't see the correlation between religious freedom and social justice issues. So for local pastors who maybe nurture and care for people who do not recognize their bias towards seeing the correlation between religious freedom and social justice, what are some practical things that you can pass on to them to help them nurture that within their congregation? Right. I would say local pastors need to look at what's happening in their local communities and in the public square. Um, the issue that's happening right now around critical race theory and public education and what could be taught in public schools um, is an issue that every faith leader um, should pay attention to. Um, because We can't look at things in history, for example, the civil rights or the freedom movement, right? The communities weren't fighting back just because, right? It wasn't, it just didn't pop up. There are histories worth of experiences that happened to these communities that brought us to the places in which we are right now. So first thing I would say is they need to educate themselves about what's happening in their local communities. Pay attention to who's being impacted by the issues, right? Um, And if you don't have um, connection with communities that are different um, in terms of they might look like, look differently from you, believe differently from you, then you need to do a little bit more work and going outside of your comfort zone to see what is happening. What's happening in the public square around voting rights. Um, again, look at the communities that are most impacted by these issues. Where are, where are redistricting issues coming up, right? And why are they being redistricted? Why, why are certain public schools more heavily funded and supported than other public schools and those resources. And here's the thing, if no one wasn't paying attention during the pandemic, right, during the height of the uh, pandemic, then they were missing a whole lot of why social justice is an issue and it relates to faith communities as well. Because for those that, you know, follow scripture, right, it tells them to, you know, take care of the widow, take care of the orphan, take care of the poor, right? So there are communities that are being impacted by this. 
we see that even with the work that the Poor People's Campaign is doing, right? They're out there for a reason because people cannot live sustainable lives based on the low wages that they're making or not having access to affordable health care or having access to affordable housing. So that's what I say. Pay attention to those issues. Look at what's happening even on the Supreme Court level, right? The, it gets to the Supreme Court when the lower courts can't, you know, handle it or it, 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 it gets put back and forth, right? There's a lot that people can pay attention to. The other thing I would say is follow the BJC, right? Go online to the BJC. There are lots of resources and programs that we have done over the years that point back to these issues being relevant to communities. One of the things is, of course, the Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign. That's raising so many different um, issues that are, again, connected back to what I talked about as far as public education, CRT, what can be taught in, in the history um, in classrooms. Also, look at this. What is happening with our young people that are in classrooms that might come from um, different religious traditions that might not be Christian, right? The, there are lots of things that are happening in the public square that people could pay attention to. So I would say, one, educate yourselves. Two, tap into the BJC. And then three, take action, right? You, everyone can do something to um, advance issues in their community. And I think sometimes people think they have to, you know, mobilize a big, you know, rally and everything. You can write your elected official. You can write a letter to the editor and say, this is what I see happening. And, and these are things that I'm not just suggesting because, you know, of the work that I do. But these are things based on my own personal experiences that I've seen happening even in my hometown that I was like, oh, no, no, no. That's a voter suppression issue. Let's address that, right? So there are small things that people can do that have major impact in the communities. But you have to, you have to be willing to see it. That's the other thing. You have to be willing to see it. And sometimes people are not willing to see it. But when you have children going hungry, when you have, you know, employees or, or I should say elected officials that are making decisions about who has access to food programs based on their gender identities, um, and that was something that came up in 2022, we have to pay attention to those issues. Again, our mandate as people of faith is really to take care of the community. And so if we're going to do that, we have to pay attention to the public policies that are going forward that, that are causing harm and moral injuries to those communities that need to be served the most. Hmm. The few minutes you know, we have left, I want to give you a chance to spotlight um, one particular initiative that, that's under the center, which is uh, the Religious Freedom Mobile Institute, where faith leaders have the opportunity to Reimagine religious freedom to address social justice issues. What, what would you want people to know about it? Oh, the Religious Freedom Mobile Institute. I'm very excited about this opportunity to share with the community because they will have the opportunity to hear from thought leaders, um, from scholars and practitioners that are really exploring this topic around the complex politics of race and religion in this country in ways in which that, you know, it's not talked about on a national level. And this particular conversation that's taking place October 26th and 27th is, as I stated earlier, it's called Disbelief, Reimagining the Religious Landscape of Black America. What we need to understand is that we come to this conversation with so many different perspectives, so many different experiences, and those need to be heard. And we have like brilliant scholars that come from the secular community that will tap into this work. And we're partnered with the Center for Engaged Research and Collaborative Learning at Rice University, which is led by Dr. Anthony Penn. He is one of the leading black humanist scholars in this country that has written about humanism in many different ways, but also points back to justice issues that are happening to um, black communities. But here's the thing. 
what I want people to know is that this conversation is the beginning of many conversations that we plan to host um, via the center. And that when you listen to the conversations of marginalized communities, there are ways that other people who may not identify as black can see themselves in these conversations because these issues impact all of us. Um, and so I invite people to go to the BJC website to um, check it out, to learn more about this event that's coming up as we unpack the many different stories and narratives of, of people in this country that have experienced religious freedom and freedom differently. And here's the thing, many are still striving to really fully realize what it means to be free in this country. So that's what I want people to realize, is that that's the conversation. I also tell people, too, that is a it's really a family conversation that's happening very publicly, too. So that's important for people to realize that, you know, it's a, it's a family conversation within the community that's happened publicly because people need to know, bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Note for those that are listening to us, we're recording this at General Assembly in the Gathering Place, and somebody has one of the most unique sneezes I've ever heard for. What a great way to end the interview. Our guest is Dr. Sabrina Dent, uh, the director of the BJC Center for Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation. You can learn more about her work at bjconline.org. Sabrina, thank you for making time for this conversation. Oh, Andy, thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Our guest is Guthrie Grace Fitzsimmons. He is the Communications Director at the Baptist Front Committee. Guthrie, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. It's great to be back. Oh, you, you joined the Tuber Club. It's, it's an honor. Yeah, it's, uh, the Tuber Club is a rare club. The three for, three for is a special group. We'll see how this goes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, last General Assembly, you had just joined the BJC staff. You know, looking back at the year plus, what, what's your experience been like? It's been exciting. I have been an admirer of BJC for a long time. I first heard about BJC because I was working with Muslim American civic organizations around opposing former President Trump's Muslim ban. And I found out about this great Baptist organization that was advocating for everyone's religious freedom, not just Baptist. At the same time, I recently joined a Baptist church, Highland Baptist Church in Louisville, and so, the, the, both my personal and professional life led me to BJC, and it's just been an incredible year. A lot's going on with Christian nationalism, with religious freedom cases at the Supreme Court. Kind of a not, I told my boss, Amanda Tyler, that I didn't expect it to be this busy when I took the job initially, but it, it has been. And it's great to be in places like CBS where we meet so many people who just love the work BJC is doing. Yeah, I think the first time we sat down for an interview, you had just converted to, to being Baptist, which felt like a win, right? You know? I think it's a win. <laughs> uh, communications director seems like a, a pretty easily understandable job. I'm joking, so part of my dumb question, what's the vision behind your role and why is it important to be this work? We have two goals in the communications department. The first is to grow and diversify our audience reach more people, we think the cause of faith freedom for all is important, and that we want to find new supporters, whether that's in the churches that already support BJC or outside of the Baptist world through our Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign, we're reaching all kinds of new audiences all over the country. And our second goal is with the audience that we have to inspire them to take 
So we're not content just to be, you know, have an audience and educate them. We're an advocacy organization. So we're measuring our success by how many of our supporters are actually doing something in the world to defend and advance religious freedom. We had an intern that was like, it seems like communications is involved in everything. And that's true. <laughs> in some sense, everything we do is a form of communication. And that's one of the great things about the job, working with our legal department on the briefs we filed with the Supreme Court, with our development department to raise the money to do this work. With everyone at BJC, we get to help craft this message. Just in case somebody doesn't understand sarcasm, I know your job is very difficult. <laughs> so uh, BJC is in the halls of Congress, the Supreme Court, engaging in dialogue with lawmakers and decision makers on religious liberty issues. As people who only consume politics these days through media, um, you're in DC, so you know what are these people like off camera in their day to day work? And not just in DC, but our office is directly across the street from the Supreme Court and Congress. And so I walk to work every day right down North Capitol Street with a view of the Capitol, which I'm an optimist. I've been in DC and working in politics and faith for my whole career, but I'm still I find it very inspiring in a very earnest way to be walking down towards the Capitol and engaged in this. And there's a lot of bad that happens in DC, a lot of nefarious kind of lobbying, but to be able to bring this Baptist message, I find it just, I would do this for free just as a volunteer, and a lot of people do. And to be able to get paid to do this is just incredible. And I think people are surprised when, when people ask me, oh, what do you do? they're expecting, you know, some kind of generic lobbying or uh, work on the hill or something, and I say, well, I'm trying to prevent our country from being taken over by authoritarian theocrats. And they're like, oh, that's intriguing. And then I say, and it's a Baptist organization. Then their eyes even light up even more. And I think sort of like they, the overwhelming reaction from people who are people of faith and have no faith as well. That's important work. I really feel that. Yeah. Um, you've, you've been writing at the intersection of faith and politics for, for quite a while, and you know you're now at the front lines in D.C. seeing religious liberty advocates at work. Um, what you know, thinking about uh, the BJC staff and their religious liberty, and what, what kind of work do you want to highlight now that you're kind of in it? You know, uh, versus not that you weren't in it before because you're a fellow, you're you know doing writing things like that, but now that you're there on a day-to-day basis, kind of what do you want to highlight about the work that you guys do? The most exciting part of our work, which is why I wanted to promote and uh, be a part of it, was the Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign. That BJC has been a leader in naming Christian nationalism. A recent Pew Research study uh, just came out that said over half of Americans are unfamiliar with that term. It probably was much greater if you'd ask a few years ago. But BJC has been a leader in both naming and identifying Christian nationalism as a problem, and then also doing something about it. And in my previous job was at the Center for American Progress, and I kept saying, more people need to hear about Christians against Christian nationalism. And so I started doing an interview when I was at CAP with Amanda Tyler. And while I was in the process of writing the interview, I saw this uh, job posting for communications director, which was like, wow, how much do you really feel that, Guthrie? <laughs> that, that more people need to know about Christians against Christian nationalism. And I was like, I really feel it. And so I applied while I was doing that uh, interview with Amanda to, to do this full time. And since I've started, we have received a lot of media attention, more media attention. We're close to 34,000 people uh, signing our statement. And we're, I was just down in Dallas with some of our team. We're starting our first local organizing strategy where we have this national campaign, but we want to go deeper in certain local communities. So that's the part of the work that um, I think is most needed and then also BJC is best equipped to lead. Let's, let's stay right there. You've written extensively about white Christian nationalism, a, a term that not a lot of people were familiar with uh, a few years back. 
And while more awareness does not equate real change in people's relationship with faith and country, what, what, what's the latest iteration of white Christian nationalism and how are you seeing it play out in the nation's capital? A big thing that's changed since I started in this job is having a sitting member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, overtly identify as a Christian nationalist. She even started selling t-shirts saying proud Christian nationalists on them. And when we started the work, a lot of the reaction to saying Christians against Christian nationalism is sort of saying, well, no one is a Christian nationalist. This is not a real problem. And now we have a member of Congress proudly identifying that way. I was just down in Miami for uh, something called the Reawaken America Tour, which is this roadshow led by uh, disgraced former General Mike Flynn, and then Roger Stone was there, um, Eric Trump, President, uh, former President Trump called in to the tour while I, uh, the tour stopped in Miami, Miami, and he said, Mike Flynn, you'll be in my next administration. And they had, we watched baptisms happen, and it was this very intense, overt Christian nationalism. We were there to see it in person, and then we also helped organize a counter witness. We had a vote going around Miami that said Christians against Christian nationalism on it and got a lot of media attention to both um, the harms of what was going on and then the reaction. So while there's been Christian nationalism and white Christian nationalism throughout American history, we're now seeing people actually claim Christian nationalism um, explicitly, which is, uh, in, I mean, there's many ways you could look at that. It's, it's dangerous that people are advocating for it explicitly, but it also helps us reveal the problem. When, when it comes to issues of race and Christian nationalism and sexuality, white evangelicals are, are not taking it laying down. Um, they're striking back with legislation that controls the conversation, especially in schools. Um, we've seen this in states like Florida, Texas pushing the Ten Commandment bills. You know, as a, again, BJC working behind the scenes, what, what kind of work is being done right now to counteract um, this, this backlash from white evangelicals? One of my favorite things I've done since I started BJC is in reaction to this Ten Commandments bill. So I'm, if listeners aren't familiar, sort of made national news that Texas wanted to force, my home state of Texas, wanted to force every public classroom to put up the Ten Commandments in a visible spot where everyone could see it. And that seems like a pretty clear example of... Um, having the government try to impose religion on people. And not just anybody, but the most vulnerable, kind of impressionable people in our society, which are our children. And so this harm is going on, and then this Texas state legislator, James Tallarico, had a viral moment where he talked about um, being a Christian and wanting to push back on Christian nationalism and how he wasn't going to let his faith be distorted in this way to serve far-right political interests. And his kind of public witness blew up online, and then um, Amanda and I got to talk to him and do an interview and kind of join forces with him. And while he was uh, talking to us on the Zoom, he mentioned how he had read my book, Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity, about the need for Christians to more overtly counter Christian nationalism which is just one of the most special things that has happened in my career, to hear that um, putting out this call that I was doing before BJC and now at BJC for Christians to say, we're not going to let this happen in our name. We have to do something explicitly as Christians, whether you're elected official or just an average person. Uh, everyone has a role to play in saying, not, this is not our faith. I don't typically have conversations with my guests about sexuality, but you know they often um, you often write about your experience as a gay man coming out of the evangelical movement. And recently, you wrote about the passing of Pat Robertson. I was following your tweets, and uh, that coincided with Pride Month. And in what ways did did Pat Robertson's brand of Christianity impact your upbringing in, in this movement? 
I was actually raised in a pretty accepting, I mean, not explicitly accepting uh, Methodist church. I had a pastor in high school who was vocally supportive of LGBTQ rights. And so I felt like I grew up in this <laughs> anomaly of <laughs> what Christianity should look like. And then it was when I learned about the dominance of the religious right and uh, the sort of heyday of the religious right in terms of the 2004 uh, George W. Bush re-election campaign that um, I became dismayed with the state of religion and politics and was like, that's what I want to do with my life is work on that. <laughs> and since, though, since that time of the kind of dominance of the religious right, I do think that we see the fruits of it, which is decreased church attendance. I meet people all the time who say, I don't want to go to church. And I say, well, what does that mean to you? What do you view the church as doing? And they start saying homophobic and they list all these very negative things. I'm like, well, I wouldn't want to go to that church either. And so you see declining church attendance. You see just that uh, what I, I was working on an essay that I didn't actually publish about Pat Robertson's death, and I think you're seeing that um, brand of Christianity dying out. And as it fades, though, the adherents become even more vocal because they are seeing um, the country becoming more diverse, religiously, racially, um, in terms of LGBTQ acceptance. And so their response to that is not to just <laughs> accept it, but to try to fight back and a small, I think the overt Christian nationalists uh, who are really pushing Christian nationalism are a small, and, and survey data backs this up, are a small portion of the American public, but they're very well organized in trying to exert political power. Yeah. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, a model ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then a model ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. Staying right there, uh, you know, you, you talk about uh, a rapid decline in kind of this population. And yet, there's still a subset of this population, and even within our movement. I mean, there's theological diversity within CBF. Um, you know, how do, we, how do we create space for people who maybe were raised, um, and indoctrinated is a hard word, so I don't want to say indoctrinated, but were raised and spiritually disciplined on the Pat Robertson brand of Christianity of the world that are eager Christians who are looking to to maybe change their minds on things? How do we create healthy spaces for that within churches that maybe aren't there yet? Come from a non-judgmental place. I want to go back to the Reawaken America tour, right? This big road show that Amanda and I were at in Miami. And I have very little interest in um, talking to those people that were on stage, the organizers of the tour who are using Christian imagery and symbols and language to gain political power. And I, I don't have any, I don't think it's an authentic expression of Christianity. But for many people in the audience, their faith is very important to them. They're hearing, oh, our faith is threatened. We have to take drastic measures uh, to do something about it. And so I think approaching the audience, 
that is swayed by Christian nationalism and saying to them, we want to offer a different understanding of the gospel. We take our faith very seriously because when they're left with these people, uh, Mike Flynn and Roger Stone and these people uh, pushing Christian nationalism, and the only pushback they hear is from secularists or people that um, are not religious and, and just talking about the harms of Christianity, when that's the forced choice, far-right Christianity, fundamentalist, theocratic authoritarianism, or give up your faith and uh, embrace secularism, that's not a dynamic that I think that's a, a tough choice for people. But when we offer a different understanding of being deeply rooted in our faith and inclusive and pluralistic, that's a totally different conversation we're having um, with people who are, have maybe are, are not familiar with Christian nationalism. Or when they hear the term Christian nationalism, they think, well, Christianity is good and nationalism is good. They, they don't think a lot about political ideology. Most Americans, to, you know, I, I think about political ideology a lot, but the, almost all Americans don't think that much about different forms of political ideology. So when you say Christian nationalism, they're probably just like, oh, that's a good thing. Yeah. Label as political idolatry. That might be a better term. Yes. For it. I want to go back and mend uh, the opening of that question. I didn't say, I don't, I didn't mean to say I don't typically talk about sexuality. I don't tend to talk to my guests about their sexuality. But you, I have written a lot about yeah, it, yeah, so I feel like it's fair game. Yeah. Um, you know, we sat down for an interview in 2020, smack dab in the middle of the pandemic. You had just released Just Faith, and you wrote this in Just Faith. We enact a politics of blessing and love in our society that through collective action seeks to take the burden off everyone Jesus has blessed. I wonder as you, as you think back on the you probably wrote that book in 2019 because the publishing process takes a little longer. As you look back at the last four years... And then it came out during a pandemic, so I lost all sense of time. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, as you reflect back on, 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 on that idea, what, where are you seeing the fruits of kind of what you've spoken into the world start to take root? Well, publishing in 2020 was so much going on. The pandemic the election, and then the insurrection, just so much happening. And what I'm seeing is more Christians and people of other faiths standing up for democracy. So I, we did a report when I was at the Center for American Progress called the Pro-Democracy Faith Movement, and we're seeing more and more discussions, I think, around the 2020 election, and then because of the insurrection, it, it, you know, in retrospect, it feels strange to have put out a book right before the insurrection about the state of, like, American politics and religion, because the insurrection changed so many things, and I think as a result, there is now a thriving democracy movement, which you see in other countries where, you know, that have had to fight more recently for democracy, and now we're all having to decide, is this something worth advocating for. We can't just take for granted that we're a democracy anymore because we have an active authoritarian strain in our politics. That's what I'm concerned about is authoritarian theocracy. And we all now have to be like, are we going to be on the side of democracy or not? Which is something people in a lot of countries have had to think about and fight for. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. 
Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.